0: Hey there campers, welcome to another episode of Outdoors Podcast. I'm so excited for this conversation today. I can't wait for you to get to check this one out all-around outdoor badass Erica Holler joined the show. She is an invasive python hunter in the Everglades. She's a fly fisher. She is a national park ranger or former. Uh, She has spent her entire career learning about and exploring the outdoors. And so she is an incredible resource to learn from. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this conversation. Without any further ado, let's just jump right into it. We're slightly above everybody else on the intellectual <laughs> scale, I think. Altitude sickness is no joke. Once it gets below zero, it's cold. There are a lot less sportsmen now than there were, say, 20 years ago. You're actually, you were used as a pawn okay. in our game to figure out what it was that we were doing wrong. You know, at that point, we didn't have one great 10. Like, we had one good 10, one not good 10. <laughs> yeah
1: wind was just whipping uh there's like snow <laughs> just like pelting the face
0: <laughs> all right we are live erica welcome to outdoors podcast i'm super pumped to have you
1: hey aj i'm really glad to be here thanks for having me on the podcast
0: super hey. super pumped for this conversation so kind of a little context for everybody out there erica uh is somebody that i just literally met on instagram uh i started following you from like you know Back in the day, probably probably a better part of a year or so ago. And what really kind of caught my eye, and we're going to get into this just in a little bit, but I want to kind of get a little bit of your history up front first. Uh, You literally hunt invasive pythons in the Everglades and dispatch of them and turn them into amazing things and help with this massive conservation problem that's happening in Florida. So I want to get into that, but that's really what caught my eye from the very beginning. So for all of you out there that are going to listen to this conversation, it's gonna be awesome, so we're gonna get into that. But tell us a little bit about kind of your background, where did you grow up, and what's kind of your your experience or your you know evolution in the outdoors. How'd you get to where you are today?
1: Yeah, so um well, I'm not from Florida originally. I'm from uh, Pennsylvania outside of Philadelphia. and my mom was a teacher, so that meant we had like most of the summers off. and we'd pack up our little family station wagon and quite often we'd make our way out towards national parks. And yeah, so I started off in national parks at a young age. Um, I think the first national park, I got my junior ranger badge at. I don't, I'm not sure if you're aware of that program. Yeah,
0: for sure. I think it's awesome. I love that kind of stuff.
1: That's what hooked me. Um, So I went on a walk with a park ranger at Yellowstone and he was just like, he knew every single plant. He knew like the Latin names for him. He knew every single bird that was flying past. He could identify him by sound. I just thought this guy was like a superhero. And um, so, since that experience, I believe I was seven or eight, actually years old. Um, I really knew that I wanted to be, you know, somebody that was outside, a naturalist, a botanist, biologist, something like that. So that sort of carried me all through high school, and then I went to college in Colorado, in Fort Collins, at Colorado State, and that also is just a really, really cool mountain town, and we're just yeah. surrounded by, you know, so many different recreation opportunities. So it just kind of continued. To foster this fire of like, I gotta work outside. I gotta help protect the outdoors. And uh, then when I was out of college, I went to work at a state park. Worked at a state park in Colorado for a couple years, and then just started working as a national park ranger. And that's uh yeah.
0: And, and did you <laughs> major in something in school that kind of lent to itself towards that, or did you kind of just get something more general studies and then kind of dive right in?
1: Yeah. So um, I studied parks and protected area management, wow. and then. It was a really fun degree, yeah. And I also got a, a major in Spanish as well. So that's helped me out quite a bit with my career. So
0: brilliant. So smart to do. That's so smart. So mm-hmm. what was some of you know, I mean, how was, was a lot of your curriculum in school, like lab, outdoor based, kind of very hands-on type stuff? Or was it still pretty traditional, like kind of classroom style learning?
1: So a lot of it was more traditional classroom style learning. Um, there was supposed to be like a three-month-long outdoor, complete ecology, biology, like where we had learned to identify all the trees, all the different fish species. And it was going to be three months long. I was really, really excited. That was my junior year. And we had a wildfire breakout the day before the classes to begin. No way. I had my car all packed up. I was so excited to spend the next, that summer in the woods. And so they had to cancel all those ID courses and we had them in the classroom instead. Which oh, is like that's,
0: a a bummer. Bummer. <laughs> that's a huge bummer. That's
1: uh, a huge bummer. But, um, you know, since then I've been able to learn a lot outside and uh, with my job in the National Park Service, I has a lot of hours just wandering around trails with like books and and just, you know, always a Always a student of the outdoors. So
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I know that you're kind of planning a transition in your career. You've got kind of a new direction that you're headed, including literally a new direction across the country uh, from where you've been residing in Florida, most recently. What's the new job? Kind of where are you headed, and and what kind of brought you to this new direction? And and what are you excited about it?
1: So um, I'm leaving the uh, the Park Service to go uh, be a guide at a fly fishing lodge. And this fly fishing lodge is pretty close to Yellowstone National Park. So it's going to be combining my love of fly fishing, teaching, you know, teaching about the outdoors and also my love of public lands. So it's just this wonderful position that I think fills a lot of my um, my niches out there.
0: So I think it's going to be such a really great experience for your clients because you have that background in teaching and it's going to be such a more comprehensive kind of holistic day than just like, Hey, we're going to go put you on the biggest, best fish we can possibly find. We're going to boat everything. I mean, granted, I'm sure you're going to be working hard to do that, yeah. but uh, to add those layers uh, to that experience and to really make it something special with the context and with understanding, you know, a lot of the geographical features, you know, uh, Sarah and I spent my, my wife spent uh, a couple of months in Colorado this summer tooling around on our RV. We got married out there this summer. It was super fun. And, and, We were at this overlook one day and I heard this dad say this really cool thing to his daughter. And so much of my high school career was just pushing back from every class that I could because I didn't get where I was going to apply it in any way whatsoever. And the sciences were like that big time for me. I just never really saw where that was going to apply for me. And I see this dad and he's on a road trip with his daughter, I would imagine. And they're looking out over this unbelievable overlook. And she's asking all these questions and he's just nailing questions left and right. Like He's got all the information. Mm-hmm. And she goes, how do you know all this stuff? And he goes, you know, if you choose to go to college, you really ought to take a, a geog- or geology course, yes. just an intro to geology course, because it will teach you to understand so many of the things that you're going to see in the world. And I was like, oh, what a great moment for a dad. Like I wanted to walk up to the guy and be like, all right, good job, dude. You nailed it. Uh, and it was so applicable. Like it made me want to go back and take, a, you know, audit some intro to geology course at a local community college or something just to start learning and digging into it. And it was exactly that, right? It's, it's fostering that information and really kind of passing that on to the people. It will really enrich their experience. So I'm pumped that you're going to do that. That's super cool. Yeah. Uh, so let's kind of talk briefly about, and we're going to come back to fly fishing because that's the language that I actually speak best with you. But what <laughs> I really want to dig right in from the beginning on what really just fascinated with me about you from the beginning you hunt snakes in the Everglades. Like you walk into swamps with no shoes on and try and get your hands on the biggest snakes you can find.
1: I wear shoes. I do wear okay, shoes. You do.
0: <laughs> okay. okay. I want to make sure because I've seen different images and I'm like, I don't know whether she's snake hunting right now or not, but I, so I just wanted to make sure. All right, cool. So you wear shoes when you go. Around Let's- town,
1: I might forget to wear my shoes to the bar and stuff like that. But when I'm out snake hunting, I'm in hopefully some sort of shoe and maybe long pants for all the mosquitoes and things like that. But Gotcha. So
0: yeah. <laughs> let's talk first. I mean, how did the, how the hell do you get into this activity? Like, A, have you always been that kid that just like walks up and grabs a snake and is like, look, or d- is this something that like you figured out later on?
1: So to answer that question, is this something like, I've always done this as a kid. I've always loved okay. finding wild animals and seeing if I could like get a little closer to them and how I could observe them. Um, My dad said when I was, I think like six or seven, I caught a snapping turtle and I carried it all the way home and put it in our like plastic recycling bin. And I said, look, we got a new pet. And my parents were wondering how the heck I caught this snapping turtle and how I still had all my fingers, you know? Yeah,
0: seriously,
1: (laughs) seriously. So I've always just been fascinated about wildlife and wanting to get, you know, a closer look to them. Um, but my whole interest in snakes didn't really evolve until a couple of years ago when I moved down to Florida and, uh, we had a snake, uh, catching course done by big Cypress national preserve, which is a preserve, right. Um, it kind of follows the border of Everglades national park a little gotcha. bit. So, um, the, the FWC, they did a, a course, they taught us how to identify pythons correctly and then how to properly handle them. And the way that you were taught that skill was they literally had a bag of snakes and one by one, they would release a python in this big grassy yard and you could either use like the snake hook, which was this long metal hook, or um, there's a variety of different techniques. You can just if you have really fast hands, you can grab just right behind the head or um, some folks will just kind of place like a boot or their shoe on top of the snake and then pin right behind their shoe. So um But that's how we learned was them just letting a snake out of the bag. And uh, they had maybe, I think, four snakes for like our group of 20, 25 students. So each snake got caught a couple times and you wanted to be one of the first people that caught that, that green snake, you know? Yeah,
0: for (laughs) sure. It doesn't quite understand what's happening just yet. And did you go straight in for the hand method or did you start off with the hook? You went straight in. You just went for it.
1: Yep. Just had to go for it. Yeah.
0: And how big approximately were these snakes? I mean, were these some pretty good size animals or were these like fairly kind of smaller, smaller these, snakes?
1: These were all around like 10 feet, like eight, nine, 10 feet, something like that. So I think most of them were uh, males or like smaller females. Um, but just you know, it's probably tougher for them to keep larger snakes there at their facility. Sure. Make, but uh, they were definitely a, a good size snake. Yeah. And once, they let them out of the bag. There was this little, um, like, uh, pond right nearby. So you had to make sure that you got after the snake. You can't let's one go. So we, uh, we learned pretty quickly in that Python class, how to capture them, how to control them, how to get a good hold on them and not let their body really start to constrict around your arm. They're not a venomous snake. They're a constrictor. So you gotta keep like working this massive snake body off of your forearm. And it's just wild yeah they're very very strong um i've never been bit by one
0: wow yet not yet (laughs) knock knock
1: yeah not yet uh but i've had some close calls where you think like "Ooh!" and the adrenaline is just pumping so it's it's a really fun um, sport, really fun activity, whatever you want to call it. <laughs>
0: yeah. So let's talk briefly about like, what is the the reason for all the people that aren't familiar? I've got kind of a general understanding of it, but I don't really have any kind of information on it. What is kind of leading the need for people like yourself to go out and catch these snakes and dispatch of them? And like, what is the invasive species problem related to pythons in, in the
1: Everglades? Yeah, exactly. So you, you touched on it. They are an invasive species and in my opinion, like the worst invasive species. They can grow up to 18 feet long, um, several hundred pounds. Yeah, 18 feet is the longest we've found in the wild so far. Um, And so a snake of that size has probably consumed a couple dozen rabbits, a couple dozen native birds, maybe some opossums, raccoons, maybe a fox, maybe um, smaller alligators. So they really are just causing a huge, huge effect upon our native food chain. And uh, we've been shown in some studies that it's like ninety five percent of the small mammals are gone because of these pythons, and seventy five percent of our deer are gone because of these pythons. So, wow, yes.
0: yeah, that's a serious, serious problem. And is are there currently enough people out there that are trained and working on the problem for there to be progress, or is there just like a massive need for more?
1: Um. So. There's a couple different programs that you can get. Well, that's a lot of technical stuff I'll get into maybe later. But sure. um, it's an uphill battle to answer it. You know, like we don't really quite know if we'll ever get a grasp on this problem. But we have to keep trying. We have to keep fighting. Their it's like population. the hog problem
0: in Texas, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. You got to try to at least contain it to that state or not let them like get out and cause a lot of damage in other areas. So we're always going to keep. And we do have lots of wild hogs out here um, yeah. as well. So we have to keep trying to to knock out those numbers every year, but it's a big uphill battle. I don't know. Yeah.
0: So let's it. talk <laughs> best of luck to all of you that are in the fight. Erica's going to be heading to Montana, but for all of you, and I know <laughs> you, I know that, you know, what's kind of cool about watching your channel and following you is that like, you're not alone, you know, even as a, a woman in that, that pursuit, you've got a bunch of friends that are women that are out there doing it with you. I've seen pictures of you with, enormous snakes with you and your friends and it seems like a really kind of fun thing to do together so kudos and shout out to those ladies that are still out there that are still fighting this fight uh, appreciate your service because i i love florida and i don't feel like running into a giant 18 foot python <laughs> the next time i'm down there Uh, and certainly I want all the wildlife to be, you know, thriving and flourishing and all that kind of thing. So huge Mm -hmm. problem. And I appreciate, you know, you putting in all the effort that you have. So let's kind of talk once you've got one of these things, right? Mm -hmm. What is the process that you then go through to essentially dispatch the animal? I would imagine as humanely as possible. And then you then basically take it a step further and you've then taken skins and started processing and, and turning them into all kinds of cool stuff. So how do you basically do away with a snake uh, in a humane way. How does that happen?
1: So, um, with the smaller ones with like hatchlings, um, it's pretty easy for you just to take a sharp knife and hold them down and just cut off the head really quick. Um, but with the slightly larger ones, you definitely have to make sure that that brain is dead. So we'll use, um, like a bolt gun, like a uh, farmer's use. Sure. And sometimes it takes two, two rounds, um, for a larger snake. And then we quite often take like a little pocket knife and it's called pithing the brain and just kind of Swirl the brains a little bit. You definitely want to make sure that that snake is dead as quickly as possible for the humanity of the animal. And then um, the weird thing is that, you know, in a snake that's even six feet long, there's still plenty of oxygenated blood within that body. And even after they've been killed, they are, they continue to move and move for hours and hours, which is just kind really? of really, scary- yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah. That'd be a little spooky for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. That'd be like, especially with one that was pretty significant in size, that'd be pretty spooky to, to observe and to kind of have to maybe have around the corner or something like that while you're just kind of hanging out, waiting for things to run their course. So
1: the, the strike instinct is still, um, apparent in a lot of no snakes. No
0: way. hmm
1: Yeah. Wild. It's, it's spooky. So you definitely want to make sure that like, after you kill them, you put them like, we put them in large, um, like pillowcases, just yeah. like legs, tie it up, make sure that they are not getting out of there. Um, because even a, a dead snake can still keep moving and moving and like loosen a knot or you, you never know. It's, wow. it's wild.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. So, so yeah. once
1: <laughs> that's
0: crazy, <laughs> it's
1: that's crazy. Really, really I, awesome.
0: You know, it's, it's fascinating. My, my wife used to be a veterinary technician and she's oh. g- left that career path and is doing something different in the future. Still animal related, but, uh, some of the stories coming home from the end of the day, uh, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, not, not to be graphic or anything like that, but like if a dog has rabies, like legitimately has rabies, the way you figure that out is you cut their heads off. That's how they have to do the test. Essentially. Really? Yeah. It's a very like intrusive thing. Yeah. Uh, And obviously, you know, animals are dispatched and humanely, you know, euthanized and things like that before that happens. But it's, it's, it's a, a serious procedure. Uh, so I, hearing some of the things that came home from, uh, you know, a great clinic, all everything incredible, uh, just some of the things you don't realize, like what goes into managing the animal world. So kudos to you for, for having the guts to do all of that. So once the animal is dispatched and they're basically completely gone and everything's done, What is the kind of timeline and the process and what all do you have to do to take that and then turn that into something, whether it's a hat band or a wristband or some of the other things that I've seen that you've made that are really, really cool. You and I have kind of shot some pictures back and forth uh, through social media. So what's the kind of process that you go through from once the snake is done to you've got something that you can then basically turn out into the world?
1: For sure. So um, it's definitely easier to skin a snake when they're fresh and not like freezing the meat so we try to just do it, you know, later that day or the next day. And um, it's just a question of having a really uh, sharp fillet knife and just kind of go up the belly. And then I just slowly cut and work my way around and then peel it off um, the back of the snake. So gotcha. it's not too hard. It's not too hard. And once you get a little bit going, the rest of it just pulls gotcha off pretty easily. And um, then I have this like hide scraper, same kind of hide scraper that you'll use on like deer and elk and scrape off a couple layers of fat, clean it all up. And then I soak the skin in a giant glass jar that has like a 50 5050 um, solution of vegetable glycerin and rubbing alcohol let it it turns into this like snake kombucha looking kind of weird thing <laughs> kind of a gelatin and, kind of grossness Oh it's definitely it's definitely nasty I've gotten used Gosh, to it though over the years and I just kind imagine. of the skin is all uh, soaked in that solution and then stretch it out I got kind of dark in here should i turn on another light um but i got a now this is a protected species this is a rattlesnake hang on a wow. second somebody um was driving past my house and they're like are you the crazy snake lady i'm like yes i am Um, uh, that's me and uh um, oh
0: that thing is crazy cool yeah yeah that's awesome
1: so then i tack it up on a board and then just kind of let some of that extra vegetable glycerin um just kind of absorb or I take a paper towel and then keep it up here for another couple of days and then it's ready to be turned into a belt.
0: Nice. So yeah. how do you essentially, right? That's a protected species. Like how do you essentially document or prove that you didn't acquire that in some sort of illegal, you know, way. Like for example, in, in Missouri, if you're going to go harvest trout and we have a number of parks that, you know, stock trout, and you can go and basically catch your, your four or five trout a day if you want to. Uh, and you basically buy a tag and you keep that tag with those fish from that point until you consume them or until, you know, whatever you're going to do with them to essentially prove like, Hey, I, br- I got these in a, a, a legal manner. Is there some path that you have to follow by having a protected species like that, or just essentially get to.
1: Probably, But, um, I, uh, oh, Fair enough. There, there probably is something, some sort of documentation I should have here. Um, because this one, I, I turned into a belt already. Um, and this was, I was driving down Highway 41 out here and I saw this rattlesnake curled up in the road and I straddled him with my tires because I thought he was, you know, he's a native species. He belongs here. The pythons don't. And uh, I looked in my rearview mirror and I watched a guy swerve to to hit it. Man. So I pulled off on the side of the road immediately, you know, did a U-turn, went back and he had killed the snake. So I grabbed it thinking, well, you know, at least I'm going to honor your body, little buddy. So, um, yeah, there, there's a... Uh, there's definitely probably something I should register with this, but, um,
0: Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Cool. So, so what essentially gave you the inspiration in the first place to say like, all right, I'm going to take this stuff. I'm going to then kind of, t- you know, make bands out of it. I'm going to sell these kind of at markets and things like that. And then kind of, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about the rest of your artwork here in just a second, but let's kind of talk about, you know, what made you want to kind of do that in the first place?
1: Yeah. So, um, here in Everglade City, uh, we have this fun festival in February. We just had it the other week called uh, Everglade Seafood Fest. it's a chance for everybody in town that like is a vendor, somebody that like artists, everybody can have their own little booth and sell their own crafts and goods and things like that. And in 2017, I saw somebody that was doing Python products and they had cuffs and wallets and like lighter um, cases and all sorts of cool stuff. And I thought, Want to learn how to do something like that too? So um, that just sort of happened in conjunction with getting that Python handling course completed, and I thought, okay, this is a fun new kind of project to take. Yeah, on. yeah, kind of
0: fell in together, kind of nicely. Just skills and desire and all that kind of stuff kind of came together. That's really awesome. So let's kind of tr- talk a little bit about more some of the other artwork that you're making, which was also mm-hmm. kind of caught my eye on Instagram, which is really cool. You're basically taking shapes of fish that are kind of—I I don't know whether they're native to your area or just kind of, sh- you know, fish shapes in general. Essentially, cutting them out out of different types of wood and then basically hand painting them into these really cool creations. And I saw recently, like some of them made it all the way to Mexico, which is really rad. Like so cool that that stuff's traveling across borders and it's going to potentially. I mean, Erica, this is what I love about that stuff, right? There's things in my parents' house that are a hundred years old that thing might last that long. It might last longer than that. Like that family might really get into that fish and just keep that and pass it around. And it could be a thing like that. That just lasts for the next hundred years. That's so cool. Yeah. That's going to be there for a long time. That's awesome. So how'd you get into that? Like what kind of inspired that and where did you kind of pick up these, these skills? Cause that's not something that everybody, I feel like, just comes naturally to you. Maybe it didn't come naturally to you. Maybe you just practiced at it. Kind of tell me about that.
1: Yeah. So um, I've always loved like painting and sketching and that sort of thing. And I just loved expressing myself through um, some form of art. And I'm trying to think of in town, there's a couple people that just have these really neat um, fish that are formed out of like pieces of driftwood and they maybe really shape the head and smoothing out the head. And then they, as they go back past the gills, they let the body just become the wild piece of driftwood. And I always thought that's a really lovely thing to do. And so I got a sander and a Dremel and I kind of started trying to do stuff with driftwood, but it was harder and harder for me to come by like the ideal pieces of driftwood. So I thought I'm just going to get plywood and start making my own sort of fish. And um, I found some reclaimed plywood sitting at the back of my rental house here and just started cutting and forming, got a jigsaw a couple days down the road and um, and a router now. So I'm just slowly acquiring more tools, learning how to use them more. And um, it's just become a blast. I've had other friends say like, hey, we want to get a snook that we can put right outside of our boat launch and we can mark it with our last name and I'll take a Dremel and carve their last name. Yeah. In it and like that. So I do a lot of little custom personalized deals for people here in town and Um, It's just been another great way to express my uh, creativity and I get so inspired living here in Everglades City. And anytime I catch a fish, I just like look at you and think like, oh, like you are a piece of artwork, little pompano. And just, I just love the fish out here so much. I just want to recreate them. out of wood, I, on watercolor, yeah. I
0: think it's really cool because, you know, so often I think people forget when it comes to artists, they they see maybe there's a price tag on art and they go like, oh, you know, I'm not going to spend that kind of money on this thing that I'm just going to hang on my wall or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. They forget about the vast majority of the reason that the artists are doing it is because they love to create stuff, yeah. right? And then they've figured out a way to make a living at it and support themselves and maybe take care of a family and, you know, send kids to school and do all the things that you, we are perfectly fine paying people to do right. But for some reason, if their thing is art, we have a hard time finding a way for them to make a living at it. I've never really understood that, but so many artists just want to express themselves. They want to create something and it's not about the money. It's just about putting something out there into the world uh, that they think might make somebody, you know, put a smile on somebody's face or make somebody think about something a little differently or something of that nature. So I'm super into that. That's really awesome. So Let's talk a little bit about, you know, you kind of created these fish as your artwork. Let's talk about your love for fish, right? You obviously have ah. a real deep passion for it. Uh, mm. You do a ton of fly fishing. It seems like all over the place. Uh, you've mm. caught some incredible fish. How did you get into fly fishing in the first place? What was kind of your entry into that world?
1: Oh, gosh. So I have to thank Instagram for um, for getting into fly fishing, actually. Yeah. I Let's see. It was... Well, I picked up a Tenkara rod in 2015, and I don't know if everybody counts a Tenkara rod as fly fishing, so. I've got one right (laughs) over there. (laughs) So um, I had a Tenkara rod when I was living in uh, California and just spent the summer backpacking in the Sierra Nevadas and like didn't really know what I was doing. Wow. Oh, it was wonderful. And I didn't really know what I was doing at that time with a fly rod. So Tenkara was simple, but caught like little, um, I think they were like golden trout like rainbows and stuff like that so right. that was like my introduction and then i kind of put it away for a couple of years and in 2017 when i moved down to florida there was um at my local fly fishing shop there's an advertising for a women's only fly casting clinic and i thought yes this is like this is my calling and i went there and they showed us how to cast like a seven or an eight weight something like that yeah We casted in the parking lot for a good, like, hour and a half, and then we went across the street to the lake, and we learned how to cast with, like, better, like, with the water tension. Yeah. And out of that clinic, I walked out of there having four brand-new friends that were all women and incredible fly casters, and I'm still friends with them to this day. And so I thank those ladies for um, putting this incredible passion of fly fishing um, in my soul. So that was wonderful event and they still have um some fly casting clinics there and fly tying nights and stuff like that but it was that women's only um event that really called me out because um it's a mainly you know a man's dominated sport out there but there's plenty of women now coming out on the scene in the last like decade so yeah
0: um, yeah absolutely i mean i was just uh over the summer when we were in colorado we were really kind of the timing worked out just right where we walked into golden fly shop in golden colorado uh, it's so shout out to Justin and, and Davis and the guys. Um, and they were super nice, super inviting. Welcome Sarah and I in walked us all around the shop, showed us all kinds of cool stuff, invited us. They had this big barbecue, kind of the end of the summer barbecue thing that they were doing and they had this huge tent and they had a, have you ever heard of a pickers collective? By the way, this was like one of the coolest things I've ever heard.
1: Um, like collective. So like a bunch of bluegrass guys. Yeah, so like,
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, this was really cool. So it, for all of you that are listening, basically Pickers Collective, they have like 60 or 70 members of this group. Wow. And basically, whenever the, the band gets hired, you're going to get like six to eight of them, but you have no idea which six or eight. And it's going to be whoever can basically show up for that gig. And so you basically never see the same group. But they all know kind of the generals of the same songs and they can essentially play for a couple hours at a time and they just work their way through different kind of hits and stuff like that. But then lots of little soloing and stuff. And it was so cool. They were incredible. So I really apologize for not knowing the name of the group, but they were awesome. And so we got to go to this great end of the year barbecue. They had fly fishing golf. So they basically you stood on a thing and you casted to like a hula hoop. And they had like an eight weight that was like a 60 foot, you know, cast. And then they had like a little three weight tiny cast that you were just like dropping it in. It was awesome. And there was a group there, Colorado women on the fly. And it was exactly as you just talked about this community of women that basically all go to these events and they go fishing together and they kind of support each other and bring more women in. So absolutely. I've seen groups around the country have a lot of success in bringing more women to the sport. So really cool that you found that uh, for your group. So once you got in, I mean, it seems like you do a lot of fishing. I mean, you really get out and we talked a little bit about this off air that you're pretty much out from morning till basically night. Like you really spend your life in the outdoors, which for those of us posers that basically just kind of go weekend warrioring on the weekend, we all live vicariously through you. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, tell me a little bit about where you like, I mean, you don't have to give away obviously, you know, spots or anything like that, but what part of the state are you primarily fishing in? What are you targeting? What kind of gear are you using? How are you getting to them? Kind of give me some some of the basics of, of what you like to do when you go fishing.
1: Yeah. So um, I'll go fly fishing on anything from my paddleboard. That's a blast landing and fish on my little inflatable paddleboard. And then um, I also have a 15-foot uh, tiller steer, a little, little tiny skiff that just gets me in all sorts of great backcountry creeks. And um, it's really fun. I have a trolling motor on the front of it, too, so I can fish by myself a little bit or with buddies nice. on it. So that's really fun. And um, so I fish primarily in an area called the 10,000 Islands, which go from like Marco Island down um, towards Everglades City. And then they continue down along the coast towards Flamingo. So um, I get to literally have my pick of 10,000 or even more islands to go explore. And, um, you know, we can target a variety of fish here in Florida throughout the year. That's what is makes this like an amazing, amazing fishery. Um, This time of year, we're going after lots of pompano and sea trout. Redfish are prevalent. um, And the big tarpon are just starting to show up here. So uh, they'll be sticking around from like March uh, well through June and that sort of thing. So we get to target a variety of fish here, which is so much fun. Uh, But a lot of times I'm casting like a seven or an eight weight. And um, the fishery here is tough. We have a lot of tannins in the water. So sometimes you don't really quite see a fish until you're like, right up on it or you have to be pretty good at looking for wakes and looking for slight changes in the water movement. Um, but then every once in a while, we'll just see a couple of redfish tailing and that's just such a wonderful sight to see those blue tails sticking out of the water, see them doing a headstand. And um, But like my favorite fish to target out here are tarpon. I just absolutely love those fish, whether they're a juvenile tarpon doing lots of little backflips or the big silver king that makes like a 40 minute run out across the flat. It's just Oh, tarpon are like number
0: one. What is it about tarpon that's so special? I mean, obviously everybody from the Midwest, when we, when we think about saltwater fishing, like that's what everybody's thinking about. I mean, redfish are obviously near the top of the list. Everybody's got kind of their hierarchy, but what is it about tarpon? Obviously I've never been in pursuit of one. I've never had one on the line, so I can't speak from experience. Tell me what is it that's so intoxicating about that fish and why do people love to, to chase them so much?
1: Well, there's just a number of things about them that I just find so impressive from even their smallest size, the smallest tarpon I've caught on flies, like about this guy, even just such a small fish is pulling a bit of line. They're executing these incredible jumps where they're just backflipping over the line and just there's a lot of skill and a lot of talent I think it takes to bring a big fish like that and, and land them at the boat. A lot of the times you're breaking off, you're pulling too hard, you snap the line. Um, they are a really incredible fish just to see up close or to watch jumping and running, you know, a hundred yards away from you. They're just such an impressive species and um they're just the most incredible thing. So I've only lived in Florida for three years and um the first place I lived at had a canal that had maybe 30-pound tarpon rolling through it regularly. So that's the fish that I primarily caught the first year I lived in Florida. I felt That's very wild. spoiled saying that. Yeah. <laughs> That's
0: wild. It's like and, saying your first car was a Ferrari. It's just like, okay, I guess.
1: Exactly. And I'll never forget after this like rainstorm that happened in, um, it's like November, we had a pretty rainy spell through there. And right after the rain quit, I said, I'm going to go fish the backyard canal. And I chucked this, uh like it was like a snook lure, a white paddle tail with a fluorescent um, jig head. And I checked it out there and something like a sea monster swallowed that thing. And it was like an 80 pound tarpon and they're not normally that big in my backyard canal.
0: Good God.
1: It was insane. And the sound of that thing splashing down into the water was just like thunder booming. And I'm yelling at my roommates, get out here. You guys got to see this fish. And um, one of them saw it jump through the air and they're like, holy moly, that thing lives here. And it was just it was like intoxicating. It was one of the best nights ever. And, um, so yeah, I've just constantly been in pursuit of those those fish. they're They're amazing,
0: so as you transition to the north <laughs> part of the country and you head oh, yeah. up to Montana, do you feel like you're gonna have this pit in your stomach or in, in this hole in your soul where you're not getting these giant forty, fifty, sixty pound fish? I do you think you're still gonna get a lot of fulfillment out of, you know, 12, 13, 14 inch rainbows and browns.
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, I asked myself that same question when I was, uh, taking this position. Um, I think I get a lot of enjoyment in watching other people catch fish as well. That's awesome. And Watching things, you know, come together for them. When you see the light bulb turn on, they're like, Oh, mending. Okay. We know how to mend now. You know, like when people get those little skills to finally click it's really rewarding. I mean, I, I've been a teacher, uh, outdoor education instructor for a couple of years as well. And that just seeing that connection occur, you can tell the moment when it happens is really rewarding. Yeah. For
0: me. Yeah. yeah. I was, uh, you know, this will come out on the, the podcast with Chris, that's going to be coming out from, uh, morning new fishing company, but Chris said something really poignant on the podcast and I hate to spoil it because it hasn't even come out yet, but, yeah. uh, he basically, you know, I said, does it get frustrating, you know, fishing with people that are, are pretty novice, right? Because a lot of people that are hiring guides, not that you don't hire guides when you're really, really skilled, right? Because they know the water better. They've got the techniques for that local area. They know, you know, access points that you're never going to get as, you know, just a, a guy coming in from out of town. Um, but, you know, I, I was like, does it get frustrating fishing with people that suck at fishing every day? And he was like, no, man, because the way I think about it is, let's say the guy that's in my boat is a contractor, right? If I had to go do that guy's job, on day one, I'm going to be really bad at his job and it would be unfair for him to expect me to be really good at it because what I'm pretty good at is fishing. So I think about it the exact same way. He's coming and doing my job. And if he's not great at it on day one, that doesn't totally catch me off guard, nor should I want him to be. So it's my job to help figure out how do I take him from where he's at or you know where she's at and, and take it to the next step. So totally great perspective that you've got. And the fact that you enjoy watching other people catch fish and having them connect the dots, uh, is really cool. You know, I saw a great, I don't read a lot of catalogs, but for some reason, one day I just decided, you know what, I'm going to read the Orvis catalog front to back. I'm going to see what the actual content says other than just the stuff in it. And it was really cool because, and forgive me for not knowing her name, but the woman that was on the very front inside cover is founder of the, or co-founder of the Fifty Fifty project, right. Trying to create more equity in fly fishing, you know, by getting more women on the water. Uh, but she's also been a guide for like the majority of her life and an instructor. And she said, what I love most about teaching is that when I see the dots connect for people, I start to imagine all the places they're going to go fish. Oh. And I, it was like, Oh, what a beautiful way to think about it. And she goes, I get so excited thinking about the hikes they're going to take to Alpine lakes or to beautiful rivers and tiny meadows. I, I, the, the friends they're going to meet from casting classes and things like that, the world that it opens up for them, if I can simply get them to connect the dots to where it becomes fun. And I was just like, God, that's such a great way to approach it. So pass that along to everybody that uh, I encounter. If you can approach anything in your world that way, uh, you'll live a more fulfilling life. Uh, So speaking of fulfilling, I mean, you've spent some time in maybe one of the wildest places on the planet, but certainly in the United States, you spent a portion of your life living and working in Alaska. What took you there? And tell me a little bit about your time there. What was some of the stuff that was really memorable and what were some of your takeaways?
1: So um, I worked at Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve uh, for two years, for 2017 and um, 20, or sorry, 2018 and 2019. And i had had previous ranger friends who had worked there in years past kept telling me, you have to come work here. You have to see the landscape, the wildlife. And so finally, I saw a job opportunity open up. I interviewed for it while I was in Florida in 85 degree weather wearing shorts and flip-flops talking about snow and glaciers and bears. And I was thinking, what am I doing? Um, And I couldn't have been happier. I I went out there uh, maybe like the first of April or so. So they were trying to just getting out of winter and getting into springtime. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. The two years there, I saw some of the most incredible wildlife of my entire life. Got face-to-face with 200-foot-tall glaciers and... Spent a couple, I think I did two nine day paddle trips in a kayak out there and just got to get into the wild country. And yeah, it was so, so incredible out there. I really, I actually, I might go take a job out in Alaska next summer and maybe try to be a fishing guide out there and get back out in that, that big country. So that's um, awesome. Yeah. It's, It's it's really wonderful.
0: If if that ends up coming together, uh, hit me up. I've got a buddy who's trying to buy a fishing lodge in Alaska right now in a pretty Ooh. incredible place from a guy that's been in the business for 30 years. So if all the pieces come together, it's going to be an incredible place to guide. So uh, if you don't already have an angle there, I'm sure you already do. You know a ton of people more than I do in that area, but... Uh, That's a really, really cool thing to to potentially go back to. Let's talk a little bit about, for those of that are out there that think like, hey, fly fishing guiding might be something that would be a really cool part of my career or maybe an entire career. What were the steps that you kind of had to go through? Like, how did you end up becoming a a guide at a lodge in a state where fly fishing is, you know, I don't want to say everything because there's lots of cool stuff in Montana, Uh, but I mean, one of the States that this, this sport, this activity is really kind of huge in, uh, how do you end up, you know, as a guide in a state like that, what was the process for you to kind of either get recruited or find yourself to there, you know, how'd that go?
1: Yeah. So I'm still like amazed that I have this job as well. You know, it is a state where fly fishing is, you know, very, a little competitive out there. There are guides that have been guiding out there for 40 some years and, um, so I have some big shoes that I'm, uh, going to try to fill out. There. Right. Um, but I've also been like a constant student and I love learning and I love learning, you know, new techniques and how to push through new challenges. So, um, I think the way that I kind of knew that this was the future for me was as I was a park ranger, I did a lot of fish with a ranger class, uh, fish with like a ranger clinics. Oh, cool. And I was uh, spin fishing and I would show kids how to identify fish properly, fish anatomy, how to hold a fish, how to not, you know, put your finger in the gill and hold them that way. Um, So just like wanted to create future ethical anglers really was my whole um, game. And I took that love and I started talking to these different lodges about my passion for uniting, you know, fly fishing and my love of federal lands and like how I think a job like that in Montana or Wyoming or out in these you know, more rural areas, how I think that would be a great opportunity for me. And I found a lodge that's going to take a chance on me. And um, I've never rode a drift boat before, but I've, you know, paddled Hawaiian canoes, I've paddled paddle boards, kayaks, all sorts of other vessels. So I think I'll probably put that drift boat in a circle once (laughs) or twice and then, then I'll figure it out, you know? So,
0: so my, my buddy, Brad, uh, God knows I'm not good at rowing at all, but he taught me one thing that I felt like was probably worth passing on to anybody else in the world. And you probably already know all this stuff, but, uh, he basically said it can be a little tricky for people that are used to rowing forward, right? Because we're so used to essentially, Pointing the nose away from the danger and row like hell to get past it, right? Uh, you can steer your way to a certain amount, but you got to have enough momentum going in the direction that you want. With a drift boat, it's the exact opposite. You point your nose at the danger and row away for, from it, right? So if you've got an obstacle over here, you're not going to row this way. You're going to point yourself at it and row away from it to get yeah. away from it, right? And he hey, goes, yeah. so that can be a little bit tricky for the person that's used to point away from it and row like hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just something that he said to me that made a lot of sense when he said it, he goes, it's going to the exact opposite of what you think. And the second he said that, it, it all made sense for me and started to come together a lot easier. So pass yeah. that along for you. I'm sure yeah. you're going to have incredible instructors that are going to be working with you to help you get there. So Awesome. Awesome. Uh, what are some of the challenges that you think you're going to have to kind of overcome in just being a first year guide on the water? And um, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to most, uh, about the new position?
1: Um, I'm really looking forward just to learning from people that have been guiding out there for much longer than I, I mean, obviously I'm going on, yeah, year one. So I think it's important to remain humble and, um, just remain very, um, positive as well and always ask questions and try to keep really great relationships with other guides and with other companies out there that I'll meet on the water and always ask questions. And like I said, be respectful and be humble as well. Um, I'm not one to brag, so I don't think that'll be too hard, but, um, so there, there are a lot of obstacles that I'm going to have to overcome, but I've done a couple seasons fishing in Colorado, a couple out in um, California with some, some fly fishing. So I think it'll be um, a little bit of a learning curve, but, um, it's nothing that I'm used to. I mean, I worked in Hawaii at the national park at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. When I got hired there, I had never been to Hawaii. I didn't really know much about volcanoes and they hired me. I had about two weeks of training and there I was talking like an expert. So wow! I'm very used to just trying to yeah learn as much as I can and and study really hard on uh, when I get off work and um, just fully throw myself into that new ecosystem. So I, I'm really excited to have this new challenge and- all this new stuff that I get to
0: learn. That sounds so exciting. I mean, you've just got such a fun career, but it's been intentional, right? Like you've made the decisions, you've taken the chances, you've applied for those roles for, you know, a lot of kids and, you know, it's kind of funny. My my 9 to 5 job is I mainly go around the country and talk to kids about why they might want to get a job in cybersecurity. I work for a nonprofit And we basically expose the career path to students that may not have ever known about it and then give them resources and pathways if it's interesting to them to go in that direction. And secretly behind the scenes, my brain is going, don't get a corporate job. Just go be a surfing instructor in Australia. Like just go wander around for a while. At least take some time. Like. My brain is always kind of contradicting th- that story, right and and we do a great job and, and I think our content, what we do on the cybersecurity side is really awesome. Uh, but part of me is always wondering how do you foster that interest in kids, you know, and encourage them to go take those chances and get those jobs and go for it? Uh, if there was a, a high school kid that's coming out as you know maybe they're 16, 17, or, or maybe even a little bit further down the path, that maybe wants to do a a less traditional job uh, and, you know, go do something really cool like you've been doing, what would you say? What would you tell them?
1: I would tell them just start right now. Start doing what makes you happy. Um, You can do it. You know, don't let people tell you that it's crazy and that you're not thinking about your retirement. You're not thinking about your 401k. Do what makes you happy. Um, I have a lot of great memories that I know when I'm in my 60s and 70s, I'm going to be looking back on them thinking like, yeah, I live life right and um, do, just do what makes you happy. You know, that's really the best best saying I could
0: come up with. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, as far as fishing goes in Florida, so I'm a Midwest based fisherman. We'll kind of wrap up with this and then I'll let you get back to your night and go out and have fun somewhere out back on the outdoors. I'm guessing, uh, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go downstairs and watch TV and you're going to go outside and like catch a snake, catch a fish, make some food on the beach and have a good time watching a sunset (laughs) if I had to guess. Uh, so As far as fishing in Florida, for those of us that are basically, you know, Midwest trout fishers that have really not been to, you know, those bigger parts of the saltwater, you know, kind of Southern United States, what are some of the biggest things that maybe you think would be different for us that we would then kind of need to know? Or how would you approach, you know, if you're coming from somewhere like me, coming down to Florida, how would you go about finding someone to take us fishing and, you know, books the, book the right guides? Because to be honest, one of the things that you hear in the Midwest where I'm from is that like, there's just a lot of salty salt guides, right? There's just like a lot of kind of assholes that are basically mean to you all day and don't really want to put you on the fish that they want to put you on. They'll just be like, oh, yeah, the tarpon are jumping. We're going to go after these or something like that. So for those of us that are thinking about coming down there and want to have a really positive experience, do you have any advice for for folks like that on maybe how to find the right people?
1: Gosh, you know, um, I know exactly what you're saying. There are some guys that just they're not willing to pull into the wind or not willing to help you see the fish. And um, I would say just like use your resources, use your friends if they've had any, you know, successful trips or if they got a friend of a friend, like through word of mouth is really the best way because anybody can look super friendly and encouraging on Instagram. Right. You know? Yeah. So, um, I would say just use like your friend resources and ask if other people have had a good experience with that guide. Um, in, in my opinion. Yeah. I'll gotcha. give you tons of recommendations for down here in South Florida. Yeah. Rad. You, I'll hit you up. To have Somebody that'll help you out. Yeah.
0: Nice. Nice. And if you want to, if there's any guides that you think would be a cool interview, Uh, I'd love to have more Florida guides on and talk to them about their businesses and talk to them about their love for the waterways and their fish and all that kind of stuff. So uh, let's finish with this last question, Erica. You have a really cool Instagram account, and I have really enjoyed following you there. What has social media been like? Because obviously you got into fly fishing through Instagram. You said like you saw, you know, some kind of cool content there. She talked about going to this class what has social media been like for you in kind of building a following or has it just been unintentional and just the fact that you post snakes and really badass fish every day gets you, you know, a, a nice following. Cause like you're, you're, you don't have like a small channel, like you have a pretty sweet channel, you know, what's that been like for you?
1: Um, So it kind of has just been unintentional over the last like year and a half. I think I just started um, taking more, more photos and then just started posting them. And I hadn't, I've had Instagram for about five years now and, not until the last maybe 16 months or so, but I actually started posting more content. And I think that I do just post some weird photos or out or hanging out in swamps or hanging out with gators. And like, uh, we just live a different kind of life down here than a lot of other people do. And I think just other folks find it intriguing. So, um, it's just sort of been, um, unintentional. And it's been a great outlet for me to meet other people and talk to other, um, Women talk to other snake hunters and things like that. So, I've really had some great experiences um, using Instagram uh, to make some friends. So, um, it got me invited on a trip to go to Baja California and go fish for striped marlin. And so, it's just like led me to some incredible um different adventures. So, I'm going to keep using it as best as I can and keep using it to make friends and make connections and things like that. Yeah. 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 Also, yeah. it can be bad too. I do have a limit on my Instagram. So, I can only look at it for like 30 minutes a day or something like that, which I think is important. You know, you gotta, you gotta live your life off the screen too. So
0: I think that's super healthy and wise advice. Cause I mean, it can be, I have friends that have not been on it and they're like, I'm thinking about getting on Instagram and I'm like, ah, just be real careful. Cause it can <laughs> eat your entire life for lunch. So just be careful when you go out there and, and dig in. So Erica, this yeah. has been a blast. I really enjoy getting to know you. You are even better in person than I was expecting <laughs> you to be. I mean, You've just been absolutely incredible. So I really appreciate the time. This was super fun.
1: I appreciate it too, man. Yeah, and if you're ever down in Florida, um, you know, next winter, give me a shout and we can try to get you on some some fish. Or if I'm out in your way, I'll... I'll, I'll,
0: I'll be up. in Montana this summer. You never <laughs> know. You cool. might have a client coming. You better be careful. I might be there. Awesome. All Very right, cool, hold man. on one second. I'm going to end this. Thanks again to my guest, Erica Holler, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you made it this far, next week's episode will feature fly fishing guide from ARC Anglers in Buena Vista, Colorado, or Buena Vista, Colorado, depending on how you say it. I guess the locals just call it BV. Uh, and it is John Legau. He's an incredible, incredible fly fishing guide. We talked about fishing uh, there in Colorado. We talked about fishing in Cuba and Tanzania and some incredible places. And we have a little bit of a preview about his career as a dog sledding guide, which we're going to be talking about on the next episode that we do together. So very exciting. Please do check out the YouTube channel over on the website, as well as all the articles and other content that we do put out on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.